So I went through IVF a number of years ago, and it's unfortunately one of those things which a lot more people experience than I think we really know about. And it's quite a traumatic process. I mean, there's so many things to remember. It's very emotionally grueling. It's very physically grueling. And it could have been like a coping mechanism for me. But I started thinking about the engineering and the science behind IVF. I genuinely just would sit there while they were doing these quite invasive scans, wondering how the ultrasound machine actually worked and how sound waves were being used in this special type of crystal on this probe. What the gel, you know, that cold gel that they spread on your belly or whatever when when they're scanning you. What was that actually doing? What was the purpose of that? And it really just drove home for me the amount of engineering that's involved in our healthcare systems. You know, we we often think of doctors, scientists, nurses, other healthcare professionals, and sometimes perhaps we forget about the engineers. I really just want more, especially kids, to know that this is like a really exciting field to work in and that you don't have to fit in a particular box to do it. I'm Roma Agrawal and you're listening to Create the Future. And in this episode, we'll be talking all things healthcare and engineering. I'll be talking to Becky Shipley, who's a mathematician and a healthcare engineer at UCL. And she's been studying tumours using mathematical models and using engineering to think about how we can treat tumours better. She was also part of a team that rapidly developed a mechanical breathing aid to help patients who had COVID in hospitals. And later we'll be joined by a bit of a rock star engineer and previous QE prize winner, Bob Langer. He has done a ton of research on healthcare solutions over his decades-long career, and one of his projects has been about how drugs and medication can be delivered into the body in different ways. In fact, this research formed the basis of one of the COVID vaccines that helped slowly ease us out of the pandemic. When we announced the first clinical trials of the COVID vaccine, the Boston Globe, the front page headlines is, this is not how you do science. And then my picture was right underneath it. We'll be having a fascinating discussion with these two guests about all the engineering that might be kind of hidden from you when you visit the hospital, but nonetheless, it's there. It's playing a really, really important role in your recovery. We'll also be talking about how sometimes engineers need a lot of grit, determination and resilience to make sure that their new cutting edge and slightly bonkers ideas get taken seriously and can actually be researched and rolled out to the general public. Don't give up, dream big dreams, and hope you can do things that'll make a big difference in the world. I'm really excited to be in the studio today with Becky Shipley, who is a mathematician and a professor of healthcare engineering at UCL. Becky, could you tell me a bit about yourself, your work, and how you got into doing what you do? Absolutely. I studied maths at school and at university. And I did that really just because I loved maths at the time. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Well, plenty of people don't. (laughs) You get different reactions when you say that. But I genuinely just really loved maths. I had great maths teachers. And that was the reason why I decided to study it at university. But I had stopped studying biology and other sciences when I was 16. And suddenly Mm. when I was at university, I had the opportunity to do courses like maths applied to biology and human physiology, which was around trying to use maths as a tool to describe the world around you and in particular how your body works. And I found that really fascinating because it kind of brought together physics and chemistry and biology, but using maths as the language to describe all of that. 
I then did a PhD, which was all around using maths to understand how blood flows through tubers and how that blood then delivers different drugs and that kind of thing. But that was very theoretical. I loved it, but I wanted to move closer to the application side of things so that the tools that I was developing could be used ultimately to try and change the lives of patients or have an impact on patient outcomes. And that's why I moved into engineering, because engineering is this really diverse applied field where essentially everyone's a problem solver. Um, and it got me that much closer to the people who are using these technologies and patients. So you basically, you're using maths to model how blood flows into tumours, but then the engineering allowed you to do what exactly? No, that's exactly right. So I was using kind of fluid mechanics, if mm. you like, to describe how blood behaves and flows. But moving into engineering meant that I started working much more directly with people who do like medical imaging and people in hospitals so that we understood or I understand much better the kind of problems that they face and that they need solving. So it really became that really translational conduit to take the kind of more grassroots research, if you like, but apply it and test it yeah. um, directly. Most of us have been to a hospital at some point in our lives. And I wonder how many of us actually think about what engineering is underpinning the treatments that we receive and so on. So, Becky, if I broke my arm and went into a hospital... What kind of engineering am I going to be interacting with? You'll use engineering or you'll be interacting with engineering everywhere. So the first thing you do, if you've broken your arm, you, you get taken to A&E. Um, one of the first thing they do is give you a scan. So you'll get an x-ray or some kind of medical image done so that they can diagnose what's wrong with you. You know, engineering underpins all of medical imaging. So it's a really actually vast field. And it's a really exciting field because it combines things like, well, imaging technologies, obviously, but also computation and mathematical modelling actually to be able to interpret those images and understand what they mean in terms of what's happening in the body. That's actually one of the kind of big areas of engineering and computation applied to medicine that I think people take for granted, but is a, still a really fertile area of research. Yeah, because somebody had to work out, first of all, that, you know, whether it's x-rays or an MRI scanner or CAT scan or whatever, that you can kind of well, in the case of x-rays anyway, shoot off some rays, that it goes through the soft tissue, but it's blocked by bone. Mm -hmm. um, but then figure out what kind of film can absorb that. Then how do you create an image from that? Um, and then obviously, like you said, interpret it. So a lot of interpretation was done by eye, by doctors. But now we're saying that computationally that can be done as well. And every stage of that is engineering. Absolutely, exactly. So every piece of that pipeline is engineering. And actually, one of the really exciting areas of engineering research at the moment is applying things like AI tools to automate how we can analyse those scans and get diagnostic information from them. And that's a really exciting tool that might be able to mean that more patients are treated more effectively. One of the things we use imaging tools for is to diagnose whether there's a tumour in your body or not. And that's something that you work very closely with. I do, exactly. So um, I'm really interested in understanding how we can better diagnose where tumours are, but also understand how effective treatments are being. So I work with teams of um, imaging scientists and biologists at um, University College London. We're developing this kind of combined paradigm where we want to image at really high resolution what tissues look like so we can understand what their, what we call micro-architectural microstructure means in terms of how blood flows through them because it's these blood flow maps that get picked up on scans like MRI scans. Um, so if we can better understand the link between that scanning information and 
different features of what unusual tissues look like, then we'll be able to better identify them. And you've brought with you what I hope is not a real tumour. <laughs> <laughs> it looks very realistic. Um, but you've got a model here. So, yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, it's fine. You can pick it up. Yeah, totally. It's um, more robust than it looks. This presumably is a blown up model. What kind of scale are we looking at here? It is. So the actual tumour would be kind of a centimetre large maximum. Right. So here, obviously, it's been scaled up so we can see it. Yeah, so I've it. so a centimetre is like about the size of my fingernail, but the thing I'm yeah. holding in my hand actually covers both my palms. So it's yes. it's a lot bigger and it's absolutely fascinating because I can see some of the larger vessels. I mean, it looks a bit like a cloud, I would say. So you, you've got this kind of array of larger vessels and then little branches coming off and then even littler branches coming off from there. And as you said, it's very chaotic. And I can see the importance and the advantage of being able to model this. Can you tell me what this this is made of, just out of curiosity? Yeah, well, this is actually, these are this is a 3D printed vascular structures, so blood vessel structures for a colorectal cancer that we've grown up in an animal model in the labs at UCL. I mean, it looks quite chaotic, right? So mm. this is all of the blood vessels in a colorectal cancer. So is this is this a tumour that you basically found in an animal and then you've almost recreated it digitally and then... So we've, we've seeded the tumour in an animal as part okay. of a research study. Yeah. We've then imaged that tumour yeah. using our optical imaging methods. And then we've taken the images on the computer mm. and done lots of analysis on them so that we yep. can then analyse the structures and also 3D print them. So could you tell me a bit about how your team works? Um, you know, obviously you're a sort of mathematician slash engineer. You're working with other biologists and imaging engineers, I guess. Why is it really important to have all these different types of people in a room? It's so important because as a mathematician or an engineer, unless I was talking to the medical imaging experts or the biologists, I wouldn't know enough about the importance of a particular tumour or its structure or its function to know what kind of questions we should be asking with the models. So, for example, every tumour is different. So you might think that, for example, all colorectal cancers are the same, but actually their structure varies wildly from like one individual to another individual and even across that individual tumour. So it's being able to understand that kind of information. So from that, we can then say, right, that's the kind of thing that we need to be able to interpret using the medical imaging scans or, for example, that our models need to be sensitive to. So if a patient came in sometime in the future with a tumour, which was cancerous, what are you hoping their treatment would look like, which is different than how it is now? Well, I think our, our really exciting long-term vision is that we can use these kind of tools to have personalised medicine or personalised um, treatment plans for patients. So if we know information about their specific tumour, how can we tailor what combination of therapies they have and how they're delivered in a way that is specific to them. Mm -hmm. And that obviously brings together lots of different tools. So it could be the kind of things we've been talking about around kind of personalising how their chemotherapy is delivered because mm -hmm. of the features of their individual tumour. It could be how that's combined with surgery or radiotherapy and um, different combination therapies. So it's, it's quite likely that all of us know someone that has had cancer or has cancer at the moment. What does this kind of research mean for those members of our family? Well, I think, you know, for many cancers, outcomes have improved yeah, massively okay. over mm. the last decade, even obviously depending on the cancer type. There are some cancer types, which obviously that's not true for. So I think with all of these treatments, 
um, well, treatments and diagnostic tools. The goal mm. is to, first of all, develop tools which mean that we can detect them far sooner so that mm-hmm. we can intervene sooner, which of course means better outcomes, but also for cases where they are detected later, that they can be managed and become kind of long-term conditions that people can live with as opposed to not. So talking about our personal health and so on, we've all shared this pretty horrific and traumatic health experience, which was the COVID-19 pandemic. And our next guest, Bob Langer, is a chemical engineer and entrepreneur. And in 2015, he was awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering for a system that he developed to deliver drug molecules in the body. And this system formed the basis for the Moderna vaccine. Um, How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing fine. It's nice to see both of you, Roma and Becky. Hi, nice to meet you, Bob. We've been really excited to talk to you. I think we probably met back in 2015 when you were awarded the prize, but that was a very long time ago. And I think you probably met a few thousand people on that particular trip. <laughs> well, that was quite a trip. I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget uh, meeting the Queen and, and uh, well, all the, a lot of the royal family. That, they were great. So we've been talking to Becky about her research that she does at UCL into you know, mathematical modeling of tumors and blood flow and some of the different devices that she's been working on. And one thing that I thought both of you have made huge contributions to in very different ways is the COVID pandemic. Bob, before we get into that, could you tell us a bit about yourself and where you're dialing in from? I'm in Boston. I'm a professor at MIT. Uh, and in terms of myself, I, I grew up in Albany, New York. I you know, went to the public high schools. Then I was an undergrad at Cornell. I got a doctorate in chemical engineering at MIT. And then all my friends would go into the oil companies, but I wasn't. that's what chemical engineers did. But I ended up not being very excited about that. And I went to work at uh, Harvard Medical School and Children's Hospital and then later became a professor at MIT. Sounds like you made some good choices there. Bob, could you tell me a bit about what you were awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for? Yes. Well, one of the things that I did when I was at Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School as a postdoc is we developed the first ways of making tiny particles that could deliver large molecules. Uh, I mean, and actually, for example, RNA and DNA are large molecules, so are proteins. If you try to inject messenger RNA into the body or swallow it, you wouldn't have anything. Enzymes would destroy it. Water would probably destroy it. But if you put it in a delivery system, which might be a tiny capsule, that can protect it and actually even deliver it to cells. And that led to many different medical products that people use uh, all over the world. I think they said maybe 2 billion people uh, use things based in part on on what we did. They range from things like little capsules you inject underneath the skin for uh, delivering proteins or peptides to treat prostate cancer, to uh, drug-eluting stents, to new ways of managing pain, opioid addiction, many, many other things. So that's what they gave me the award for, as I understand it. That's incredible. Um, You know, we often think of, oh, we just take medicines. You know, you swallow a tablet or you have an injection. But your work has showed us that there are so many different incredible ways in which drugs can actually be delivered to the body. What was the reaction to your research when you were quite an early career scientist? It wasn't very good. In (laughs) fact, I remember when I first spoke on this uh, when I was 27 years old to a, you know, a very senior audience of chemists and chemical engineers. They basically told me, oh, they ridiculed it. They said, this is impossible. It couldn't possibly work. It's like asking, could one of you or I walk through a wall? 
They just kept saying it was impossible. I got my first nine grants rejected, too. And when I applied for faculty positions, no one would hire me. They said doing biological work, especially what I was trying to do, made no sense. I finally got a job in a nutrition department uh, because the head of the department liked me and offered me a job, but he didn't ask anybody else in the department uh, what they thought, which would have been okay, except the year after I joined the department, he left. So (laughs) a lot of the senior faculty told me I should leave too. So it was not a great reception. How long did it take for you to kind of get your research and your work taken seriously? Well, you know, that was an evolving thing. I mean, sometimes I still feel people don't take it seriously. You know, I mean, one of the things that we did, as I mentioned, develop ways to deliver nucleic acids. And myself and three others had this idea of starting this little company in 2010. 36 years after I started that research, that little company was a company called Moderna. And basically, the press ridiculed it. Many scientists ridiculed it. And in fact, even in 2020, now 46 years after I'd started this work, when we announced the first clinical trials of the COVID vaccine, the Boston Globe, that's my local newspaper, the front page headlines is, this is not how you do science. Right. And then my picture was right underneath it. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers the question. So it's still, it's an ongoing challenge. And I think One of the things I'm taking away from our conversation is the amount of resilience that you've had to show throughout your career. And is that something that you find younger engineers coming up through the ranks now are dealing with as well? And what do you say to them? Uh, For for me, I don't know if it was so resilient. I mean, I got I was pretty depressing, you know, and made me very sad for a long time. But I believed in what I was doing. I, I think anytime somebody comes up with ideas that might challenge what I'll call conventional wisdom when they do something different. Mm. I think there's a pretty good chance that a lot of people will tell them it can't work or it's wrong or or something like that. I think just trying to let people know, don't give up, dream big dreams and, and hope you can do things that'll make a big difference in the world. And um, Becky, I wanted to bring you in here and you've got another device on the table, which which was something that you and your team developed also for the pandemic. Could you talk us through that? Absolutely. And actually, there's various bits of the story that mirror what Bob was just saying. So when the pandemic hit, in the UK at least, um, it was very clear very quickly that um, the UK actually wasn't very well positioned to have enough um, respiratory support devices like ventilators and non-invasive ventilators to be able to treat the, the sheer number of patients that were going to be sick and need them in hospitals. But I worked with a clinician and intensive care doctors at University College London Hospital who had been talking to the intensive care doctors in China and Italy. Mm -hmm. And their experience was that actually, if you wanted to be able to try and keep people off mechanical ventilators, because actually there were quite poor outcomes for COVID patients once patients were on ventilators. And also it would be really hard to manage the number of people who would need that level of um, intensive care support. So we set out to try and make these non-invasive ventilators or CPAP devices. So CPAP Mm -hmm. stands for Continuous Positive Airways Pressure Devices. We formed a team um, of UCL engineers, um, intensive care doctors at University College London Hospital, and then we teamed up with Mercedes High Performance Powertrains, who are the arm of Mercedes that um, design and make Formula One engines. But, you know, to kind of refer to what Bob was just saying, we were very much against the kind of common dogma at the time. Mm. So the, the common dogma at the time was that we needed mechanical ventilators, not these devices. But um, we decided to give it a go 
anyway. Um, and essentially what we did was to start by reverse engineering or copying a previously CE Mark device called the Philips Respironics Whisperflow device, which had been used very widely in the NHS previously. We did that because it's very simple. It's a, You're mm. holding it there. It's, you can see it's a purely mechanical device. There's no embedded electronics in it. So that would make it quite easy to manufacture. And it had been previously used. So that meant that there was um, a really strong evidence base for it being safe and effective, which we thought would help us get regulatory approval more quickly. The device I'm holding, it basically looks like um, like a digital camera and it's got six valves coming off it. And the materials look like things that are easily available. And, you know, I guess this is the point of why this was quick and easy. I think the thing I absolutely love about this is that, you know, you're dealing with a really difficult health problem, a lot, you know, huge volumes and so on. But you're still thinking about that multidisciplinary aspect and thinking, who is the best type of engineer? Who can we go to? on airflows and you thought of racing engineers. And exactly. And um, I have a colleague, um, Professor Tim Baker, in the mechanical engineering department at UCL who had worked in the motorsports industry for most of his career and had come back to um, the university to set up practical engineering teaching. And so he still had all of these motorsports mm, contacts. Mm. So we were in a really strong position because we had this kind of triangle of motorsports, hospital and university engineer. And that's what all came together Bob, could you pick up on a couple of things that we've talked about here, which is the multidisciplinary teams? Because um, I think that's a really important part of the work you do as well. And also, does that relate to being able to produce things at, you know, kind of record speed as we've seen during the pandemic? Sure. Well, let me go over the first part of your question first. For a lot of the things we do, you do want an interdisciplinary team I mean, because they involve, you know, so many disciplines like chemistry, biology, different types of engineering, uh, and so forth. And so I've always done that. I also feel we learn a lot from that, you know, because uh, different people are expert in, in different things. And, and I think that's been great for the young students and even the older people like me. I, I think you keep learning. The mRNA vaccines are a great example of that. I mean, that involved biologists, chemists, MDs, uh, engineers, mm. chemical engineers, material scientists, and, and and when you set up a company, you also do a lot of digitalization so that you can do these things faster and better. So there are many, many skills. And of course, I think the mRNA vaccines have, have helped change the world. They really have. Um, I'm sure that my booster was an mRNA one. I think I got a different one um, to start off with. But I think there's a lot of people in this on this planet that are directly benefiting from both of your work, which is um, which is absolutely incredible. Becky, maybe could you touch on what you would like to see in the future for healthcare engineering and what are the you know big changes on that broad scale that you'd like to see? I mean I think there's there's huge changes that are coming and um and they're really diverse as well. So I think, you know, one of the really exciting areas is that we're in a, a data revolution really now, aren't we? So we're getting to the point where we have increasingly detailed amounts of information about an individual mm -hmm. and we can also measure that in kind of real time now you know you think about all of these new wearable technologies everyone's wearing fitbits <laughs> or apple watches and things like that now there's massive challenges with that that we need to mm. tackle so we've got a lot of the underpinning technologies like ai machine learning modeling um, data analysis statistics we need to be able to bring them all together yeah and bob what about you what are the things that you're excited about with the future of healthcare engineering? Well, I'll tell you about some of the things that we're trying to do. I mean, one whole a big area is regenerative medicine, mm -hmm. you know, and tissue engineering. That's an area we started many, many years ago. It combines cell biology, material science, 
bioreactors. And, and for what we're trying to do is really make from scratch virtually any tissue or organ. But it also, you know, like if right now you can treat patients who are burned like with artificial skin and things mm-hmm. like that. But the other exciting thing that that's leading to are organs and tissues on a chip that you could recreate something on a very small scale, mm-hmm. but yet would mimic the human condition. So one of my students is working on a brain on a chip and, and, and many other things. And my hope is that will someday also reduce animal testing and, and human testing. So that's one of the areas. So there's quite a few others that I'm also excited about. Maybe I can put in a plug for kind of in silico tools alongside that, because, you know, obviously with my bias. Can you for explain? Kind of yeah, tell, tell, me, tell us what that means. Absolutely. So there's huge, huge endeavors like going alongside um, exactly as Bob just described, but to develop computer-based tools which essentially are mimics of the human body so you know you can have a model um, on a chip of an organ or you can have a computer-based model and there will be limitations and bounds on that but then we can do what we call in silico trials and tests of how a new intervention for example would behave on this kind of virtual person right and use that to inform clinical trials for example or to reduce the number of um, pre-clinical like animal evaluations that you might need to understand when a new therapy is safe or effective for use on humans. And that's really exciting too. Yeah, I mean, I guess that also kind of comes to the speed of being able to develop and deploy medication and drugs. Becky, could you tell us what drives you to do the work that you do? I'd say there's two things. You know, at its core, I kind of really love the science. So I'm a bit of a maths um, engineering geek, I guess, but, you know, if I get to sit down and, and do my pen and paper maths or computer-based modelling, I still, you know, really love doing that. And that's why I got into it in the first place. But also, I love being able to work with so many different types of people. It's really fascinating and quite a privilege to go to work every day and get to spend your time with really smart, motivated people working in all sorts of different fields and to be able to learn from them. And then finally, I think all the problems, you know, in healthcare that we've talked about, they come down to individuals and people. There's so much that we can do that there's many, many careers worth of research in there. So there's endless problems to try and tackle. And for me, that's incredibly personally motivating. Speaking to you has made me want to retrain as a medical engineer. So do it. Um, <laughs> do it. It's amazing. Um, Bob, what about you? What what keeps you going? Any plans for retirement? Yeah, well, probably not. Not, not as long as my health is good. But uh well, what keeps me going, I mean, there's three or four things. One, I, I love doing the research. I, I love seeing it, you know, make an impact, uh, though that's taken taken a while. I also really have enjoyed working with students and, and postdocs and, you know, training people, I, I think, I, and, and teaching. I've gotten a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of seeing them do well. And, and uh, so so all those things. Yeah, it really strikes me that with both of you, the there's the research that you're doing individually that obviously has an impact. There's the research and work you're doing with your teams that has an impact. Um, but then, Bob, as you just said, with training the next generation and I guess all of the work that they will do in the coming decades, there's an incredible, incredible legacy in all of this. And I'm just completely bowled over by the impact that both of you have had on, you know, almost countless numbers of lives, particularly in the last few years, which have been very, very difficult. So um, I will say this for sure, that I'm very, very grateful that engineers like you exist and are motivated to do the work that you do. Do you have any takeaways from our conversation today? 
Well, I, I just think it's great to hear about, you know, Becky's research. I think it's 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 really exciting and important and you know, and I think a role model for, for lots of, of, of young engineers. And I think I think it's terrific that uh, she's doing that. So I, I very much enjoyed hearing about it. Thank you so much for joining us. What about you, Becky? Well, similarly it's brilliant. Um I obviously know a lot about um Bob's work. It's fantastic to be able to talk to someone on the other side of the world about the work that they do. And I think it's come across probably from both of us that we're really passionate about this intersection between engineering and science and healthcare. I really just want more, especially <laughs> kids, to know that this is like a really exciting field to work in um, and that you don't have to fit in a particular box to do it. You know, there's all sorts of types of different people mm. and we need that kind of diversity of thought and experience um, coming up through the through the years and joining the field. So um, that's certainly something that I hope to see more of in the future. Well, given the dark, dreary day that we have in London, I don't know how the weather is at your end, Bob, but we've just got rain and cold carrying on into May. Um, Both of you have really inspired me and I'm feeling so much more optimistic and motivated about our future. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's very kind. (laughs) It's kind of a privilege to be able to do the work. I agree with that. The engineering behind our health and our healthcare solutions, I think, seems to be one of the more invisible or perhaps mysterious fields of engineering. You know, unlike, say, motorsports engineering or structural engineering, where you can literally see the results of these engineers' work. But with healthcare, it literally touches all of us. So whether we're talking about my IVF treatments or a global COVID pandemic and any other future challenges that we will face as humanity. And it's been a total joy listening to where this field is going to go how some of the most devastating diseases in our world might be treated in the future. And ultimately, this comes down to how do we make our lives and our outcomes better? You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. We'll be exploring topics such as sustainable gardening, decolonizing the engineering curriculum and even AI-enhanced humans. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.